Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. And we're now not brought to you by artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. You want to tell people about that? Yeah, I like it. This is a fun story to tell. So in order to try to streamline notes, I decided that maybe AI should write our notes. And uh, it wrote a lot of good fluff, but a lot of the fluff was wrong. And Zach spent most of his time rewriting the notes because they were wrong. So until AI could be smart enough to write better notes about games, we're going to continue delivering the same high bar content. Yes, using good old-fashioned research. Did you use JSTOR with a peer-reviewed journal? Yes, I did a Banjo-Kazooie peer-reviewed <laughs> journal. journal. <laughs> <Yeah>. That's <laughs> logged in the JSTOR uh, database. Had to check it out from the library. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I had to pay a fee, actually, to unlock it. Do you think libraries have, like, old Nintendo powers? Depends on the library. That'd be kind of a cool thing to, to dig into. I know that Video Game Preservation Foundation has a whole bunch of Nintendo powers scanned. I think a lot of them are on archive.org yeah yeah but sometimes it's just nice to read something physical anyway zach what have you been recently been playing seth recently i have been playing tetris not the tension version not the game boy version not the nintendo version that came out on the nes i was playing the 1988 famicom version developed by bulletproof software which is the same bulletproof software that was founded by hank rogers and hank rogers is the current owner of the tetris company along with tetris creator alexi plajitnov and the bulletproof software version is actually the version that got the ball rolling for what became a very complicated legal procedure with the rights to Tetris where Hank wanted to get the game onto the Game Boy and had to go to Russia to secure the rights and found out that no one was really aware of who had the rights to Tetris and apparently a bunch of companies were lying to each other. A lot of this story is told um, with some embellishment in the most recently released 2023 movie Tetris starring Tieran Egerton as Hank Rogers and uh it does actually a decent job following the beats of the story of what happened with Tetris. Though I think Hank himself has said that a lot of the creative liberties in the movie were taken because really the time it took him to secure the rights was like a year and the movie's like two hours long. So he's like, you have to shove a year into two hours. You're going to have to make some creative liberties. But in any case, I played the BPS version of Tetris, which um, is all right. I personally prefer the Tengen version of Tetris. And then I think if I had to rank them, I would go Tengen version, Nintendo version, BPS version. The BPS version has some positives in its own right. Um, I really like the aesthetic. It's got like Russian spires and stuff like that in the background and has some really catchy Russian music, but it's definitely not finely tuned to the way that Tetris can be. Um, for one thing, if you press down on your D-pad, you'll just turn the block you like in a different direction, which is fine. But on every future version of Tetris, 
when you press down, it moves the block down faster. So you can't move the block down faster. You can either let it drop at its standard rate, or you can press the B button to drop it instantly. And this kind of gets you into a sense of impatience if you decide to start at the easiest of modes where the block is dropping very, very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up like resetting the game and playing it from like level five onward where it's dropping a little faster, which made it a bit more playable. But in that regards, I think the Tengen version and the Nintendo version, which do have the functionality of allowing the block to drop faster by holding down the D-pad, just makes those versions superior. Um, The reason I prefer the Tengen version out of all of them is because that has multiplayer, which other versions do not. But yeah, the BPS version of Tetris, uh, I think it kind of holds up in its own right, mostly just from a historical element. And if you have recently seen the Tetris movie, maybe give the BPS version of shot to kind of see what was going on at that time and to kind of get an idea of uh, the whole the whole scenario with uh, with Tetris. But yeah, so that's Tetris, the BPS version from 1988. Seth, what about you? What have you been playing? Recently, I was playing American Truck Simulator. Uh, I was watching a lot of YouTube shorts involving truckers, and I was sitting there thinking, man, I think I want to drive a truck. Then I remembered that I had American uh, Truck Simulator from uh, Humble Bundle, and I downloaded it and played it on my Steam Deck, which is a lot of fun. And because I can sit in bed and pretend to be a truck driver. And, you know, I got my uh, Kenworth truck and I just drive around California bringing loads from San Diego to Yuma and all that jazz. But yeah, I, I enjoy it. It's very casual and you can uh, really just kind of explore driving through the city. You have to drive slowly. Well, you have to drive the speed limit because there's a lot of police officers and they automatically ticket you and you lose a lot of money if you speed everywhere. Uh, So I went into the menu settings and turned that off because I like just going 87 miles an hour while pulling a uh, a rig full of oil or something like that. Just be like, yep, 40,000 pound truck just rolling down the street going 87 miles an hour. That's not incredibly illegal or dangerous but uh, i do it because i enjoy it because i like to play american truck simulator while driving quickly it was uh developed and published by scs software and was released back in 2016 but has continues to get dlc i think even today it gets dlc they just add new states and new trucks and new packs and stuff like that i don't think they've added any new england states which i would be really excited about if they did the northeast the whole northeast corridor i think that'd be really cool i understand why they haven't attempted that because the northeast is full of cities and is like very heavily densely set up so but they have california which also has a lot of land that's not populated but anyway yeah so that'd be cool there's also euro truck simulator which i have not played but you it's like american truck simulator except instead of driving big trucks you drive little trucks in europe now are you familiar with the game well it's like a mini game it's on a collection of games called penn and teller smoke and mirrors but it's a game called desert bus oh yes i am familiar with desert bus that's where you drive a bus into the desert yeah, you drive from Tucson, Arizona to Las Vegas, Nevada, yes. and you can only go 45 miles per hour, so it takes eight hours to complete the game. Yes, because it's real-time distance or whatever. Yes, real-time distance, and you're required to pay attention because if your bus veers off to the side, which it lists lazily to the right, yes, it does. then you get towed all the way back to where your starting point, no matter how far you are. Yes, it's like the airplane simulator game that I wanted to buy, yeah, but it yeah. ended up being bad where you, I mean, you don't have to do anything in that game because you're riding in a commercial airline maybe we should do the oh eight hours you say 
Yeah, well, so there actually is a charity called Desert Bus for Hope, which they do live streams of Desert Bus. So that's something we could probably participate in with uh, Extra Life. When we do Extra Life, we have 24 hours to fill. We could do that for eight hours. I would, we would probably need to do it in the beginning. We'll just eat up an eight-hour segment of us playing Desert Bus. Because I don't feel like you can do it when you're tired, because that's when you fail. If we did it while we we're tired, we'd fall asleep. <laughs> Which is its own desert bus experience. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, the episode we're going to talk about today, we're, we're not going to be talking about desert bus, but we're going to be talking about, um, we're going to be talking about collectathons and specifically Banjo-Kazooie. Yes, that's right. It's our Banjo-Kazooie episode. Now, Zach. Yes, Seth. What is a collectathon? Well, Seth, that's a great question because we're going to be referring to collectathons a lot, probably. I don't know. Banjo Kazooie is a collectathon. Anyway, a collectathon is a term used to describe what some may call a subgenre of video games, uh, traditionally platformers that require the collection of a large amount of items, often in the form of hidden or scattered objects. These games typically require the player to explore complex environments, solve puzzles, and complete various tasks to find and collect all the required items. The genre itself is something that's only been established in retrospect, as back in the day people weren't referring to these games as collectathons so when you bought banjo kazooie it didn't say like this is a collectathon game it was just a 3d platformer but nowadays we call them collectathons but the things that you're looking to collect do have to play into the overall victory condition right like you can't call batman arkham asylum a collectathon even though you collect Riddler trophies. Right, exactly. Arguably, Grand Theft Auto does have some collectathon elements because you do need a certain amount of money sometimes to get to like different level structures and stuff. Fans of the genre will often tell you that collectathons are not just platformers and also not just games that require you to collect things. So, Pac-Man is a game that requires you to collect things to get to the next level. It is, however, not a platformer, so it is not a collectathon. There is a collectathon version of Pac-Man Pac-Man World, which is like, yeah. uh, I think on the PlayStation, that's a collectathon. Traditional Pac-Man is not a collectathon. Also, platformers that don't require you to collect things are not collectathons. So Super Mario Brothers or Sonic the Hedgehog, which have collectible items, but you're not required to collect said items. So for example, in Sonic, you have rings and the Chaos Emeralds, but if you want to beat the game without the rings or Chaos Emeralds, it's going to be tough, but it is likely possible uh, i don't know if you can beat it without collecting rings because i think there are areas that force you to collect rings but you don't need rings to beat a level of sonic or beat the game or with super mario brothers you do not need to collect a single coin or mushroom in super mario brothers to beat the game it will be very hard but you can beat the game successfully without collecting a single item so these games are not collectathons what really defines a collectathon in my opinion are three elements various items to collect for a goal typically to progress to another part of a map or another stage a hub world or way to access levels out of order and sprawling levels that can have their goals accomplished nearly in any order so for example the first game that is often considered a proper collectathon is super mario 64 which we talked about way back in episode 50 and to remind our listeners super mario 64 was released in 1996 and was a 3d 
platformer. The game featured a hub world with various levels that you could play, with each level having goals to achieve so that you can collect a star. The game also introduced an early mechanic in the collectathon genre, which I've referred to as collectible tiers. In Super Mario 64, the goal is to collect power stars, which are the primary collectible item. There are other things like red coins or a hundred standard coins that you have to collect, but ultimately you are collecting those to collect the power stars. It's like a it's like collections all the way down. Yeah, that's what I meant kind of like by tiers. You have like the primary collectible item, which is central to beating the game, but you have these secondary items that you can help collect that primary item. You can also earn power stars through other tasks like racing Koopa the Quick or defeating a boss. The collection of power stars will unlock more aspects of the the actual game itself. So there are doors that you need to get a certain number of power stars to be able to go through, and then once you go through those doors you can collect more power stars and ultimately you get enough power stars and you can go and fight bowser and then you continue to go and get more to fight bowser again and so on and so forth uh you unlock the basement and the top and lots of fun super mario 64 is a great game we did an episode on it go back and listen to it super mario 64 also rewards you for going out of your lane collecting more than required number of stars to beat the game and to kill Bowser, you only need 70 stars. Unless you're really good at speedrunning and glitches, then you could beat it with less than 70 stars. But game is like rules is written, you need 70 stars. Yeah. There are, though, 120 total stars. And if you get them all, you'll be rewarded with a brief cutscene of Yoshi on top of the castle and 99 lives. Now, Banjo-Kazooie, which is what we're talking about today, took this idea of collecting and amplified it. Now, to talk about Banjo, we should talk a little bit about Rare. We've talked a lot about Rare, though, so I'm really just going to kind of remind you guys about them. Back in episode 32, we mentioned Rare when we were going over the British Invasion. Uh, We also talked about them in episode 68, which was our Golden-Eyed 007 episode, and we revisited them again in our 134th episode about Conker's Bad Fur Day. If you're a new listener or you just don't remember things, I'll give you a quick refresher. Rare was founded by Chris and Tim Stamper and established themselves in Ashby de la Zouche, Leicestershire, in England as the company Ultimate Play the Game. In their very early days, they were producing games for the ZX Spectrum, such as Jetpack, Attic Attack, Saberwolf, and Nightlore. They first got noticed by Nintendo when they challenged the claim that it was impossible to reverse engineer the code for the Nintendo Famicom. Ultimate Play the Game established the company Rare with the sole intention of reverse engineering this code. They presented some tech demos to Nintendo, and Nintendo was impressed. So impressed that they actually gave Rare an unlimited budget to work on games for them, which was very uncommon for Nintendo to do. You could say it was Rare. Rare would go on to make games like RC Pro-Am, Snake Rattle and Roll, Battletoads, and various licensed property games like A Nightmare on Elm Street and Hollywood Squares, all for the NES. By the time of the Super Nintendo, Rare was established as one of the very few second-party developers for Nintendo. We've talked about it before, but when referring to game developers, there are typically two terms you'll hear, first-party and third-party. First-party is when a game is developed in-house by the company, like Super Mario Brothers, 
or The Legend of Zelda, which were both developed by Nintendo and released for Nintendo hardware. Third party is when an outside company creates a game that is licensed for uh, a game system's hardware, like Mega Man, which was developed by Capcom and licensed for the Nintendo. Second party developers are something entirely different, and it's actually a term that's not really official. Nintendo never out and said, Rare, you're a second party developer. It's actually a term that became colloquial amongst uh, game enthusiasts and retro gamers, basically to better define these companies. It's really used to refer to studios that had unique contracts with companies like Nintendo. Rare was one of these. Uh, they had a special contract with Nintendo that granted them higher royalties, but also gave Nintendo about a 49% stake of the company, which gave Nintendo a pretty strong control over Rare's decisions. In 1994, Rare released Donkey Kong Country. The game was incredibly groundbreaking as it utilized silicon graphic workstations to create the graphics, which were built on pre-rendered 3D models. So they would create 3D models of the characters, scan them into uh, on the computer, create the sprites, and then input them into the game. After the success of Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong Country 2, Diddy Kong's Quest, was released in 1995 as a follow-up. From here, Rare got to work on thinking of their next game. Originally, they envisioned an isometric RPG that would utilize the same technology that they had already used for Donkey Kong Country, specifically the Silicon Graphics Workstation. The game went under the codename of Project Dream, with a working title of Dream, Land of Giants. The original idea was that the game would feature a boy named Edson and his pet Dinger. D-I-N-G-E-R. Dinger is a dog, and then he would also have Billy the Parrot. He would encounter pirates being led by Captain Black Eye, who was on the search for something that could get his ships to fly. The game went through uh, various stages of development, with it starting out in an isometric perspective, but soon shifting to something that looked a bit more like the games produced by LucasArts. Uh, the team had to transition from the SNES to the N64, as they realized the game was growing too large for an SNES cartridge, and also the SNES was really ending its life, right? It was becoming obsolete. As the game transitioned over to the new console, the team got a bit more creative, they started building larger and larger worlds, and soon nixed the idea of a pirate theme, opting for a story more centered on fairy tales. And thus, Edson was replaced with a rabbit, and then replaced later with a bear. Because why not? I definitely wouldn't want to encounter a bear versus a rabbit, but... <laughs> <laughs> and they named this bear... Banjo. Now, the change in design for the world also led them to change the design of the gameplay. The game was no longer an adventure title that had RPG elements and was slowly turning into a 2.5D side-scrolling platform similar to Donkey Kong. The earliest version of the game had Banjo being able to collect fruits and jigsaw pieces. While the game was built in a 3D world, the graphics were flat and had no perspective to them. The team experimented with different ways to change this, but ultimately found that the camera shifting made the sprites mesh together poorly. This progressed for a few months, but one day, Nintendo stopped by. They showed Rare something that was brand new and something that was totally beyond what they had imagined, an early build of Super Mario 64. This inspired the team to tackle the game in a new direction, changing the game engine to be a fully 3D and shifting the aesthetics to be something more cute and kid-friendly, which involved altering the appearance of Banjo to make him look more cartoony. And now I really want to see a realistic Banjo-Kazooie <laughs> yeah, game. Yeah, just like real bear. <laughs> 
like a real bear. It'd be like playing Cocaine Bear, the video game, and just being like a bear just storming around. This did have a negative impact on the game, however, as they were now limited by the number of polygons they could use to craft the characters. When before they were using pre-rendered 2D sprites, they could make them as complicated as they want, and they could make the bear to be a realistic looking bear. Now, the game design itself became more similar to Super Mario 64, with a focus on collecting objects and 3D platforming. They also made the game more action-oriented, and added the character of Kazooie, who would be able to interact with Banjo by providing him with some unique moves, such as uh, faster running speed and the ability to fly for a short period of time. By 1997, when the actual work had begun on Banjo-Kazooie, the team consisted of about 10 people. It soon grew to about 15 people, and the rest of the project would take Take around 17 months to finalize. While this sounds impressive, the team was actually under a considerable crunch, with each staff member working an estimated 80 hours a week, with some team members admitting to working over 100 hours a week. The Stamper brothers actually reportedly encouraged this. Uh, there's a story that they once drove to head programmer Chris Sutherland's house and threw rocks at his window until he woke up. Now, the employees did have uh, some incentive to work on this tight deadline. Rare was actually pretty generous and often gave each of their employees royalties, and their royalties would be 50 cents per game sold in addition to their salaries, um, which, if the game sold really well, was probably a nice chunk of change. There were some ideas that the team did have to scrap, despite the overall robust nature of the game. The original plan was to include multiplayer, but this was completely scrapped, apparently down to, like, the last minute. There's a story of that when, like, a few weeks before Nintendo had final approval, one of the lead developers walked into the room and they were working, like some of his team was just working on multiplayer. And at the end of the day, they just had to be like, now we can't do this. They also wanted to include more worlds. And there was also a plan to create sections of the game where Banjo and Kazooie would be separated. But this was ultimately cut and later reused for Banjo-Tooie, the sequel. Another element that was cut was something called Stop and Swap. The plan was that Banjo-Kazooie would be able to interact with future rare titles, like, for example, its sequel, Banjo-Tooie, or Perfect Dark, or Conker's Bad Fur Day, or Donkey Kong 64, or Jet Force Gemini. This plan came about when Rare learned something very interesting about the N64's hardware. They noticed that when you took the cartridge out of the system, it would retain flash memory for several seconds. So they thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could implement a way that someone could rip a cartridge out of their console while still turned on, and then quickly insert the Banjo-Kazooie cartridge to unlock bonus content. Which arguably sounds like a pretty cool idea. Nintendo, however, thought that sounded like a liability. <laughs> so Nintendo reached out to Rare after they learned about this plan and said, no, please do not implement this. Please remove this. Uh, and they did. And actually, this was another kind of late stage removal as there was references to stop and swap in Banjo-Kazooie. And Nintendo wasn't super happy about it. They were kind of worried that this could end up damaging the system. And later models of the N64 actually were intentionally designed to have the flash memory be cycled at an even shorter interval so that it would be physically impossible to even attempt to swap the cartridges. So Nintendo was like, we don't like this plan and we're going to make sure that you can never do this plan ever. <laughs> you know what'd be funny is if Nintendo allowed it to happen and they allowed stop and swap to occur with uh, Goldeneye and then you could like get bonus Goldeneye or bonus Banjo-Kazooie content in Goldeneye or in Banjo-Kazooie so you could unlock Banjo-Kazooie as a 
playable character. I think this idea is very cool. I think it was implemented a lot better in later systems where they would, like, a game would just look for memory card data. <laughs> so, which is, like, probably the safer way to do it. But, like, I know in the PlayStation and actually some later N64 games would look for memory card data of another game. No, they should have had expandable cartridges for the N64 so you could stack the cartridges. Oh, man. It's like, like Sonic and Knuckles style. Like Sonic and Knuckles style. So then you could stack, like, Goldeneye on top of Banjo-Kazooie and it just, like, mashed all their games together. Now, a working prototype of Banjo-Kazooie was shown at E3 1997 where it was officially announced. Some magazines at the time considered Banjo-Kazooie to be the flagship title for Nintendo. Uh, the game was presented again at the 1997 Space World event and a scheduled release of November of 1997 was proposed. The team felt this was too soon and asked Howard Lincoln, chairman of Nintendo of America, to delay the game. Howard Lincoln did not want to delay the game and stated that Nintendo had already sunk $20 million into launching this game, so they better launch the game. So, to appease Lincoln, Rare was planning on releasing a follow-up to RC Program on the N64, which is the game where you play as the racing the little RC cars, and they said, why don't we take that and make it Donkey Kong characters and create a Diddy Kong Racing? They pivoted the RC Pro-Am game, made a Diddy Kong Racing, and put Diddy Kong Racing out into market to make sure that uh, Howard Lincoln was not mad at them for needing to delay Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah, that also allowed Rare to have a game for the holiday season. And a game that wasn't RC Pro-Am, which makes me mad. <laughs> which makes me mad, but I'm sure made Howard Lincoln very happy. <laughs> yes. You know, but if they put out RC Pro-Am... That would have been great. Unfortunately, we got Diddy Kong Racing. Diddy Kong Racing is fine, but I didn't know it could have been RC Pro-Am. That just makes me, like, hate Diddy Kong Racing. <laughs> yes. Now, Banjo-Kazooie was released in June of 1998. That's right. To explain Banjo-Kazooie a bit for anyone who's never played it, Banjo-Kazooie is a 3D platformer that is played from a third-person perspective. In the game, you play as Banjo, a bear, who is best friends with a bird named Kazooie. Kazooie is a red bird, and Banjo is, oh, just like a regular bear. He's like a brown bear. He's got like a big head and big hands. Banjo is very easygoing, um, actually kind of like often shown to be just like sleeping or being lazy, while Kazooie is portrayed as a bit more high-strung and a troublemaker. The game's plot follows Banjo, who is looking for his sister, Tootie. Tootie has been kidnapped by the evil witch Gruntilda. Gruntilda is an ugly and green witch, and she wants to transfer the beauty of others into her, making her beautiful. So that's why she has kidnapped Tootie, because she wants to steal Tootie's beauty. Now, the game itself features a series of nine different worlds, where you must collect a ton of different objects. The main object you'll be collecting are jiggies, which are kind of comparable to the stars in Super Mario 64. Jiggies are jigsaw puzzles. There are 10 jiggies hidden throughout the worlds with a total of 100. As you collect jiggies, you'll unlock new worlds. You can also collect musical notes. Often they're lined up in paths and uh, are used to guide the player to a new location. To get through special doors, you'll need to collect a set number of musical notes, and there are 100 musical notes scattered in each world. There are also blue eggs to collect, which can be used to shoot from Kazooie, like Kazooie like shoots them out of her mouth 
at various enemies. Um, you can also collect red feathers, which can be used to keep Kazooie up in the air for a while, and golden feathers, which can be used for invincibility. You can also collect honeycombs to fill your health, extra lives, and mumbo tokens, which can be used to transform into a specific animal. Um, and you only have to use a mumbo token once, so you can kind of like stack them. Now, how did uh, Banjo-Kazooie do in terms of numbers, Seth? Banjo-Kazooie was a commercial success, both critically and financially. The game scored incredibly well with the magazines, earning a 20 out of 20 from GamePro, a 9.5 out of 10 from Game. Spot 9.6 out of 10 from IGN and 95% from 64 Magazine. Critics did find the game to be a bit long, with some estimates ranging from 35 to 50 hours. The game quickly became one of the best selling games in 1998, selling over 117,000 copies by the end of the year. So within six months, they sold that many. By 2003, the game sold 405,000 units in Japan alone, and by 2007, it had sold 1.5 8 million copies in the US and as of 2021 worldwide sales were at 3 million units placing it at number 10 on the list of best selling games on uh, the N64 with games like GoldenEye and Super Mario 64 beating it out its sequel Banjo-Tooie would also go on to sell um, I, th I think that one also sold around 3 million games as well. Banjo-Kazooie is considered a classic of the collectathon genre and is widely regarded as one of the greatest platformers of all time. The game would see a sequel, Banjo-Tooie, which came out in 2000, and there are also two spin-offs, Grunty's Revenge and Banjo-Pilot, both released for the Game Boy Advance. In 2008, another game was released, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, which is not Banjo-3E, as people like to uh, kind of hope for. Everyone was hoping for a third Banjo game called Banjo-3E. They were all hoping it was going to be Nuts and Bolts. No. Nuts and Bolts is a game where you build cars and drive them around, and it kind of has, like, Banjo-Kazooie gameplay, but it's just not as good. A lot of people People did not like nuts and bolts. It was heavily criticized for mostly just focusing on that driving mechanic and also for kind of like the whole opening segment just like makes fun of fans of Banjo-Kazooie for wanting a third game. Uh, in 2015, Rare would release Rare Replay for the Xbox One, which features 30 games to mark the 30th anniversary of Rare. Included are re-releases of Banjo-Kazooie and Banjo-Tooie. These versions have actually been described as one of the better ways to play these games, even like superior to the N64 versions as they don't suffer from the same slowdowns that accompany them on the N64 versions. So if you want to play a Banjo-Kazooie game, like Banjo-Kazooie or Banjo-Tooie, and you want to play that game in high def at normal speeds, play the Rare Replay version for the Xbox One. It's supposed to be the superior version. The game also helped inspire other games by Rare. Conker's Bad Fur Day and Donkey Kong 64 both take a lot of cues from Banjo-Kazooie, and it would later inspire games like Ukulele, which is a very very mediocre game and a hat in time which is a very good game well that's going to be our banjo kazooie episode we're going to move on to our retro rewind segment where we talk about games that we assigned each other from the previous week so zach had me play mighty final fight which was released in 1993 and developed and published by capcom it is a side-scrolling beat-em-up game which i enjoy and it's a spin-off of a game called final fight the 1989 arcade game by capcom final fight would be eventually ported to the snes but for the NES, they created a Final Fight game, but everyone is chibi style. So, which is which is very funny. So they're like shrunk down and they've got like bigger heads and like little teeny bodies. The game takes place in the Final Fight world, but the plot is different and is 
presented more comically. They even changed the plot so the main villain, Belger, kidnaps Jessica, but in this version of the game, instead of kidnapping her to cause unrest in the city of Metro City, uh, he does it to... Uh, have her marry him because he is in love with her. Now, in the game, you can play as Cody, who is Jessica's boyfriend, Guy, who is Cody's trainer, or Mayor Mike Hager, who is Jessica's dad and the mayor of Metro City. Uh, he also looks hilarious in the game. So, of course, I chose him. So I played as Hager, and the game plays pretty well for a simple beat-em-up on the NES because, A, it's restricted by the button. Obviously, NES has a limited amount of buttons. Also, um, it's limited by the amount of sprites that can be on the screen. So it is limited by that factor, but the game plays pretty well. They're even at the first boss. They give you different options when you're talking to them, and the boss actually asks you if you want to join him and I said yes and he still attacked me. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. I think for what it's worth if you want to play a simple beat em up might and that's kind of funny. It is trying to be funny but it's not like telling you jokes. Like I guess there's games that try to be funny that are presented in a humorous fashion and then there's games that are funny because they're written to be funny. Mighty Final Fight I think is more of satire which I enjoy more than a game that's written to be Funny. So if you want to play a satirical version of Final Fight on the NES, Mighty Final Fight is a good option to do so. It's the only option to do so, but it is a good option to do so. I had a good time. I think it holds up for what it is. Next week, Zach, you could play Shadow Force for the arcade. Ooh. Uh, well, Seth had me play Ballblazer, which was developed by Lucasfilm Games and released on various consoles originally in 1985. I played the Atari 8-bit version. I think Seth said I could either play the 400 or the 800 version, but those are basically the same computers with just RAM differences. Yes. So, <laughs> so which one did you play? The 400 or the 800 version? That's negligible. I just played the Atari 8-bit version. I actually think I played a version from the 7800, which is identical to the uh, 8-bit line. I told you to play either the 400 I know, I know. Uh, well, the game is a sports game. It's a one-on-one sport game where you're playing as a, a individual trying to get a ball into a goal in a first-person perspective, which is kind of unique. I did not realize it was a sports game at first. I was very confused because I didn't look up anything about the game. Uh, I just kind of like went right into it and I was like, oh yeah, here we go. And then I was like, what the heck am I doing? I don't really know. And then all of a sudden, like, I was like getting a point or something. And I was like, what's going on? Then I realized what was happening. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a soccer-like game where you're trying to get a field goal and uh, you're going against an opponent. It's fairly simple. The 3D graphics are not really 3D. It's kind of a fake 3D and the ground has this kind of ugly checkerboard <laughs> appearance to it. But overall, it's pretty neat. It's uh, a little dated for the time, just in terms of uh, graphical and gameplay wise. But other than that, I can find it being very enjoyable. I will say, I think it would have been more fun with someone else. Like it, the game defaults to being in split screen mode. So like, I assume it's just a game that you should probably play with a friend and playing it by myself was a little lonely. So does the game hold up? Probably. I just would like to play it with someone to figure out how well it holds up versus just kind of assuming that it holds up based on me playing it by myself. Seth, next week, I want you to play F-Zero for the Super Nintendo. That's great. I will uh, I will play that game. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. If you have any memories of Banjo-Kazooie, you can reach out to us at ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com. Be sure to like and subscribe to 
us on all the social medias, Classic Gaming Brothers on Facebook and Instagram, CG Brothers Pod at Twitter. Be sure to also follow us where you can and uh, give us thumbs up and leave reviews and do all those things. Uh, if you need to recommend us to anyone, be sure to tell them that we are available on things like Podbean or iHeartRadio or Stitcher or Spotify or really anywhere you can listen to podcasts. And with that, I believe that's all I have to say. Seth, do you have anything that you want to contribute to this conversation? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right.